So uh, let's see here. Lent. We are in the season of Lent. Today is the first Sunday. And for those of you that do not have uh, uh, a background in higher church, Lent is a little bit foreign to you. So let me take a moment and just explain it to you. Lent is a time where we, um, <clears throat> we stop and reflect as we start moving toward Easter, Resurrection Sunday. It's a time when we uh, begin to, if you will, replicate Jesus' sacrifice. Okay, Hebrews 13, um, you you may remember that we finished with Leviticus 13 and 14, where it lays the groundwork for people that are defiled or have disease or sickness have to go outside the camp for a period of time um, until they're declared clean. And so Hebrews uh, captures that idea in Hebrews 13, starting in verse 11. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. When we come back, when we finish Lent and we get back into Leviticus, one of the very next chapters is dealing with this passage right here. But he goes on and he borrows this idea of being outside the camp and applies it to Jesus. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate or the camp to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp bearing the disgrace that he bore. So Lent is that time where we, uh, we focus on what Christ did while he was outside the camp. And that's what we think of as the cross outside the city gate. So he had to go outside the city gate or the camp in order to... Um, to bear our shame and our sin and our disgrace, okay? So Lent is the period of time heading up to Resurrection Sunday. By the time we get to Resurrection Sunday, then uh, you will be ready for Resurrection Sunday because we will spend several Sundays with Jesus on the cross really exploring what he accomplished. So the way we're going to do that, picture a field trip. We're going to go outside the gate where Jesus was despised, And we're going to look at the last seven words of Jesus on the cross. We already looked at one this past Wednesday, Ash Wednesday, uh, where he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. So today we're going to look at the one, today you will be with me in paradise. He said seven things on the cross. All seven are theologically very significant, and all seven occurred outside the camp. And then in order to come back into the camp... In accordance with Leviticus, he had to offer a sacrifice. Well, he did himself. His sacrifice is what allowed him to rejoin the community. And um, I had just a taste of that a week ago when I was in ICU and uh, respiratory isolation. And the last day, the doctor came in, took his mask off and said, you made it. You're safe. We're sending you home. I started to cry. Uh, at the thought of rejoining everybody because I had been five days in uh, isolation. And it was just a wonderful feeling. So when we get to Resurrection Sunday, you're going to have just a taste of what it's like to come back into the camp. In Leviticus 13 and 14, when they came in, they offered a sacrifice as a way of praise to rejoin the community. Then they offered a second sacrifice as a way to come back into the tabernacle to enjoy the presence of the Lord. And so Jesus took care of all that at the cross. So he's outside the camp for the whole season of Lent. So let me encourage you to do something. It's very common 
to sacrifice during the season of Lent. Let me challenge your thinking about sacrifice to think just a little bit differently. Typically, what we do when we sacrifice is we give up something for Lent. Okay, that's very common. Nothing wrong with it. I think it's great. But the biblical concept of sacrifice has more the idea of giving up something costly on behalf of someone else. That's exactly what Jesus did. Not only did he give up his life, he gave up his very abode in heaven. Okay? He did not regard equality with God, Philippians 2, as something to be held on to. He let it go and became a human. And that sacrifice is for the rest of eternity. He will be with us in the new Jerusalem, on the new earth. So he became a human for all of eternity. He sacrificed himself for us. That was a sacrifice. And it's a, there's no deeper statement of love than what he did. And when we get into the whole crucifixion thing and start looking at it in greater detail, you'll enjoy it more and more. <coughs> Excuse me. The after effects of COVID, no, I'm not contagious. In fact, uh, my doctor said I earned my antibodies the old-fashioned way, not through a vaccine. I just got the disease. So... Um, So we're going to be looking at it. So let me encourage you during this season of Lent to find some way to sacrifice for someone else. To do something that, you know, you all have friends and neighbors, coworkers, people that you meet. To find someone that that needs something that you have where you can bless them. And then that will help you begin to capture the spirit of what the Lord is all about. Okay, so the content, the context for the crucifixion, you've all heard lots of stories, lots of sermons about the crucifixion. What I want to do today is I want to read to you three quotes from Roman historians and philosophers of how they actually viewed uh, crucifixion at the time. Okay, the first one is by Quintilian. Whenever we crucify the condemned, the most crowded roads are chosen. Now think about that. We're going to find the busiest place we can for the crucifixion. Where the most people can see and be moved by this terror. They knew exactly what they were doing. They picked the busiest place so the most people would see it. For the penalties relate not so much to retribution as their exemplary effect. Don't want to terrify the people. Control them. And so they would crucify people in the most common place they could find. This one, this quote's by Justinian. Uh, He's a historian, so he's reflecting on the rules and the practices of crucifixion. The practice approved by most authorities has been to hang notorious brigands on a gallows in the place which they used to haunt. So that by the spectacle, others... Hear that? The spectacle. It was a spectacle. People would come to watch. So that by the spectacle, others may be deterred from the same crimes. And so that it may be, when the penalty has been carried out, bring comfort to the relatives and kin of those killed in that place where the brigands committed their murders. We're talking about the most heinous of crimes here. This is what crucifixion was used for. Here is uh, Seneca. Seneca. 
Yonder I see crosses, not indeed of a single kind, but differently contrived by different peoples. Members submit to be a terror. Some hang their victims with the head toward the ground. Some impale their private parts. We now know that crucifixion was a form of uh, sexual assault. And by all the definitions in the modern world, it's clearly sexual assault. They strip the person naked publicly, put them on the cross, and more often than not, committed uh, lewd acts of sexual assault. Jesus probably went through some of that. And he's referring to that. He's, he's alluding to it here. Um, some hang their victims on the head toward the ground. Some impale their private parts. Others stretch out their arms on a fork-shaped gibbet. So <clears throat> that's the context. Okay, Jesus has been stripped naked. Probably does not have a loincloth around him, like all the sanitized drawings. He's stripped naked. He's probably been abused, hanging up on a cross in the most public place where people can come and watch and mock him, laugh at him and make fun of him, all for something he didn't do. It's pretty amazing, huh? He didn't have to go through it. He could have stayed where he was. This is a statement of love. This is a statement of how important each of you are, that he would do this. He's surrounded by those who's mocking him. I'm just going to read some verses down through here. They won't be up on the screen. In this Leviticus, I mean in uh, Luke 23, the people stood watching and even the rulers sneered at him. They said he saved him others, let him save himself. He's God's Messiah. If he's Messiah, he can save himself. Or the soldiers, they came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar said, if you're the king of the Jews, since you're the king of the Jews, come on down. Save yourself. They even hung a cross, a notice, I mean, above the cross, which read, this is the king of the Jews. They didn't believe it for a second. This is mocking him. We're going to kill the king. The king. Or one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself. So these are, the, uh, these are some of the verses, the, the mockings, if you will. Uh, so he's on the cross. He's been publicly shamed, embarrassed, humiliated, assaulted. He's hanging in front of everybody, and they're all out there mocking him. What would you be thinking? Would you be thinking about forgiveness? I can tell you, after a week in respiratory isolation, my natural thought didn't go to helping people. There was bits of it. My natural thought went to, I'm really struggling to breathe. You know, I can't imagine being on a cross. You've heard the descriptions. Either a nail through the feet or tied, and you're hanging so crucifixion was not only about pain and terror, it's about asphyxiation. Every time you wanted to breathe, you had to push up against the nail to catch a breath. And then at the end, they would break your legs so that you couldn't. Would you be thinking about forgiveness? 
Probably not. That's how much we are loved. So then comes these two criminals. You see, these criminals represent the story of humanity. They, uh, we, we see them every day in our lives. You're going to have two choices. When I was in uh, the first day when they put me in ICU, when Nancy took me to the emergency room and they put me right into ICU and respiratory isolation, I was really struggling to breathe. And the nurse came in with all of her space gear on. And she just walks over and sits down. I just fell in love with this nurse. She walked over and just sat down on the edge of my bed and took my hands. She had her gloves on, took my hands. She said, it's going to be okay. I started to cry because I wasn't breathing very well. She said, you're transferring oxygen. We're going to give you some medicine to relax your lungs and to relax you. It's going to be okay. So a little bit later on in the day, when I was breathing a little bit easier, we were talking. She comes in and she said, so what do you do? I said, I'm a pastor. And she said, oh, yeah, I don't go to church or have anything to do with religion. And I said, oh. And I said, so do you have a faith background? She goes, no. And I said, everybody has a faith background. You sit in a chair, you have a faith. And she goes, oh, well, I suppose mine is science. So I said, and I said, science? Really? That's your faith background? Well, that accounts for part of life, but there's a whole lot more in life than science. I said, I think you're smarter than that. I said, so what's your real faith background? She said, well, when you put it that way, I guess I don't know. So we had just great conversations. And when she left, after a couple of days of taking care of me, she gives me a card with her cell phone on it. I said, hey, when you feel better, you want to have coffee? So this one in the first service, she texted me. I said, I'm ready for coffee. <laughs> And so that's one of the criminals. Very soft, very interested. And then I had another person ask me the same thing. Uh, what do you do? I'm a pastor. Yeah, I don't believe any of that stuff. And walks out. Okay. Right? So these are the story of two criminals that represent the people that we live with all around us. Okay? They caught one mocks Jesus in verse 39. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? This, I mean, he's mocking him. Save yourself and us. The other one admits his guilt and calls him by name. This is one of the few places in the Gospels where Jesus is called by name. In verse 40. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Makes you wonder how he knew that. Apparently, it was pretty common knowledge that he hadn't actually done anything wrong. You know, and they knew it. So then he said, the second criminal, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So this one, the second one calls him by name and asks to be remembered by him. So the second criminal tells us a couple of things. Number one, he believes that Jesus is innocent. Okay, which we know to be true. But that tells us that this wasn't uh, unique information for us. He's a criminal, common criminal. He knew it. But the second thing is that he actually believes that Jesus has the power to save him. But how does he know this? We'll come back to that one in just a second. You know, Luke does something very interesting here that uh, is very technical, if you will. In the Greek version of the Old Testament, which was the, the Bible of the first century, 
the Greek version of the Old Testament, this phrase, remember me, in this exact construction is used 10 times, but it's always in reference to God. Luke is telling us that this criminal somehow recognized that this was God. Somehow. And that's why he called out to him. Somehow he knew it. How did he know it? He wasn't at the last supper when Jesus taught. He probably wasn't familiar with all the Jewish sects and the rabbis in there. He's a common criminal. How would he know that? I'll give you what I think in just a minute. So we see two perspectives right in front of us here. One, the, for the unrepentant criminal, Jesus must come down from the cross to save. So you're the Messiah. Come on down, save yourself. But for the repentant criminal, Jesus stays on the cross to fulfill his promise. In other words, there's no coming down from the cross for the second criminal. For him, Jesus' death is not a means of defeat. Rather, it's a means of victory or salvation. Um, And we're going to find out in just a minute that he actually got a lot more than he asked for when Jesus responded to him. But let's go all the way back to Luke chapter 1 in the Magnificent Mary's song. She starts off by saying, My soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. He has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. It goes on in verse 53. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. And then here it is. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful. Remembering to be merciful. And now at the end of Luke, that's at the beginning of Luke, Jesus has a chance to fulfill this hope. All these people, all this shame, all this embarrassment, all this pain, all the assault. And he has a chance to be merciful. And that's what he does. Here's Jesus' answer. And it, re- and it reflects Mary's hope. In, in verse 43, Jesus answered this criminal, the second one, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Today. Okay, now what the criminal asked for was in the future, when your kingdom comes, remember me. What did Jesus say? Today. In just a couple of hours, we will be together. Same thing he said in Luke 4 when he goes to Nazareth and he unfolds the, unrolls the scroll in Isaiah. Talks about freeing the captives, right? Declaring the favorable year of the Lord, the year of Jubilee when all debts and trespasses are forgiven. And he says, today, today, this prophecy is fulfilled in your hearing. Same thing. So the criminal was asking for a future remembrance, and Jesus gave him a present gift today. We will be together in paradise. He didn't have to wait for eternity. He came right then, as soon as he died. He got much more than he asked for. So this leaves us with two questions. The first one is, what is paradise? Okay. You see, the, at this time in world history, the concept of the eternal state wasn't very clear and articulate. That actually comes with the New Testament where they begin to explain it. So there's a lot of different opinions floating around. But one of the things that they had in common was this concept of paradise. 
The Jewish rabbis thought that paradise was related to the Garden of Eden and that one day we would leave the broken world and get back to the garden. It was a place where the righteous dwell. Only the righteous go, not sinners. Okay, in fact, the rabbinic literature even says that the sinners aren't welcome there. And here Jesus is talking to a sinner. (laughs) And so paradise was a place where the righteous go. And they get to dwell and be with God. And so you can almost say it's their current, it was their current version of what we think of as the new Jerusalem, the new earth, eternity. And so Jesus is saying this very day, in just a few short hours, you and I will be together. We'll be together. So this, but in the middle of this concept of paradise, Jesus does something very interesting. Remember when I've said several times that whenever God acts or speaks in the world, he does three things. He begins to overturn evil practices or beliefs, number one. Number two is he introduces human dignity. And number three, he's, he points the way morally to true north, the new, the new covenant where we're headed. So we see this happening right here. First of all, he's treating a common criminal sinner with dignity. Today, you will be with me today. But the other thing he does is that he overturns a very, very bad teaching, heretical teaching uh, by the rabbis. You see, the rabbinic literature taught that there were different levels that existed in paradise, and people would be assigned the level based on their rank in life. So who had the highest rank? The Pharisees and the scribes. And so therefore, they got the highest places in heaven. Sinners weren't even welcome there. And here Jesus says to the lowest person in that geography, that place, common criminal today, you will be with me. Just overturned a whole sect of teaching that was going on. And so the criminal who is the lowest would be with him. And guess what? Contrary to the rabbinic teaching, it wasn't based on merit. This sinner had nothing to offer. Nothing. It's based purely on faith. And that sets the stage from then on what it means to turn to Jesus and to believe in him by faith. Here we have this case. But now we have a second question to deal with. How did the repentant criminal know who Jesus was? He's a common person. He wasn't there in the upper room. Probably wasn't familiar with all the the sex and the different uh, teaching schools and different uh, ways of thinking about things. He wouldn't be that educated. So how did he know? I think the clue is found in verse 34. Jesus is on the cross, and he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. There's the clue right there. You see, uh, thanks, Ryan, for reading Psalm 31. What was the final answer in Psalm 31? We turn to you, O God, in faith. Okay? That was the answer in Psalm 31. And so this is the ultimate expression of our faith is to free somebody else from the penalty of their behavior. Forgiveness. So picture the scene. He's in one of the busiest, crowded places outside of Jerusalem. He's been hurt terribly, probably in excruciating pain. 
everybody's mocking him, the Jewish leaders, the soldiers, the people, the other criminal on the cross. He's already been embarrassed, humiliated, and shamed. And what does he say? Father, forgive all of them. They don't really know what they're doing. Is there any greater picture of love anywhere in existence than that? The very people whose hearts are so hard they can't even receive the forgiveness are the ones he's asking for. Forgiveness. That's why Paul can go back to this verse and say, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So this is, this is the greatest picture of love in the history of creation right there when he says, Father, forgive them. And it's an ultimate expression of our faith. And the criminal, <clears throat> I think, understood. I think he understood that he was in the presence of God. Just by that saying, I have no information on how else he would have gotten it. And I do believe that our willingness to forgive others is a statement of our faith, especially, especially in our deep, deepest distress. Our deepest distress. That's why Jesus can come along and say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Right? Turn the other cheek. Because there's no clearer expression of our faith than that. So, we have two criminals. They represent all the people that we come across in life. The one thing we, do, we don't have the ability to do is to convict a person, redeem a person, or transform a person. That's exclusively and uniquely the role of the Holy Spirit. So when I'm talking to people, if that heart begins to soften, like my new friend, a nurse, that I'm aware that I'm standing in God's presence watching a miracle happen. You know, she could have just said, I'm not interested. But she said, well, when you put it that way, I guess I don't know. Well, my faith is. There's that softness starting to form, right? It's so fun as he sends me a text. Okay, when are we getting together? <laughs> For breakfast. And so other people, the Lord hasn't done that work yet. Hearts are still hard. But the answer, our answer is still the same. Father, forgive them. Please forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And in the middle of a season in a country when people are terrified, divided, hostile, all you got to do is read social media. I'm astounded every day at how mean people can be. I just stop and I just say, Lord, forgive them. Just be patient with them. Forgive them. Keep doing your work. Soften that heart somehow. Be patient. And you know what? We're the only ones that can do that as Christians. We're the only ones that can authentically, genuinely, with love, say, Father, forgive them. And that's only because we have the Holy Spirit. We are able to do what he asks us to do because of the Holy Spirit. Father, thank you for your deep, passionate love for us. Thank you for not giving up on us, any of us, especially me. Thank you. 
And Lord, I have so enjoyed and will continue to enjoy the watching you soften people's hearts. So Lord, help us to be a people that forgive quickly and hold grudges never. Let's always let it go because it's your work to redeem them. It's not ours. So thank you for what we saw, what we just read today, and the two criminals to give us an example. And yet you, you, your son asked for forgiveness for both. Thank you. In your son's name, amen. Um, okay, put your mask back on. <clears throat> As we move toward communion, Lent um, is the greatest time to move toward communion. It really is. For those of you that are watching online, thank you very much for joining us. So take just a moment when uh, this is going to conclude our online portion. Take just a moment and thank the Lord for what he's done for you. And if you're practicing communion at home, then enjoy it together. So this concludes the online portion of our service.